Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You, Lord. You're such an awesome God. And we're so blessed that we can know the Creator of the universe in an intimate and a personal way. We thank You that You're not a faraway God, but You desire to know us personally and intimately and to, and to have a, an active part in every single aspect of our lives. So we ask this morning that You would minister to each heart that's here. Prepare our hearts to hear from Your Word. Lord, we love You. We praise You, Father God. We pray that You would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. By way of quick review, my dad said I, my, my reviews have been a little long lately, so I'm trying not to make it so long. But I want to make sure you guys understand the context. In, in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is written to the Gentiles. And it, its main emphasis is on the fact that Jesus Christ, though He is 100% God, was also 100% man. You know, the... All other gods, all other you know, worldly gods that men created, you know, they claim to be God, but we see that they fall apart. We see that none of them triumphed over sin and death. None of them rose from the dead. But we also need to see that while Jesus is 100% God, He did become 100% man. So the Gospel of Luke focuses on His humanity. In the first couple of chapters, we saw the birth of Jesus Christ and we saw how many people miss Christmas. And what I mean by that is when Jesus was born, the innkeepers were so busy with the cares of this world that even though the Messiah knocked on their door, they didn't have time for Him or room for Him. And that's really a warning for us as Christians in, in the world that we can get so busy that we just run out of time for God. May we not fall into that trap. But at the same time, we saw how Mary and the shepherds received Him with great joy. Mary, even though it seemed impossible, was willing to be used mightily by God. We also saw that Simeon and Anna, people who prayed and sought the Lord, God was revealed to them. You know what? God is not hiding. If you desire to know God in a personal and intimate way, He's not hiding from you. It's not a, people think that, that you know, we have to crawl on glass, we have to do all these different things to somehow allow God to reveal Himself to us. The Bible says, seek and you will find. And God is not hiding from you, and I'll make sure that's clear. And then last week, we looked at the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. We know that John the Baptist was the forerunner or the best man of Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about in Jewish weddings how the, the best man would run into the city ahead of the, of the groom and say, He's coming! He's coming! Make way for the, be ready for the groom! And the, and the bride would make herself ready knowing that the groom was coming. And that's what John the Baptist was, or John the Baptist in the, in the text we're going to look at is. And he's the one who went before Jesus Christ and let people know that the Messiah was coming. We saw that he had a very clear message. We saw first and foremost that he came to a perverse and wicked people. When John the Baptist came to, to earth, when he was born, there had been 400 years of silence. There had been no prophecy for 400 years. We know that the governmental leaders, Tiberius Caesar was a wicked and a vile man. He was a man given to drunkenness and cruelty and idolatry. Also, the, the high priests of the day, the spiritual leaders of the day, were also men who had walked away from God. There were two high priests when there was only supposed to be one because it's a picture of Jesus Christ. We know they had turned away from the Word of God. They had become self-righteous men who were more concerned with the popularity of men than being faithful to the truth of God. And you know what? We see that in the church today as well. We see a lot of churches where they've turned their back on the Word of God and they're teaching the opinions of men. And there's nothing new under the sun. That's 2,000 years old. The same is true even today. So we also saw that John had a clear message. And his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, the reality is that that's the message that we should be preaching today. It's a message of repentance. It means to turn away from my own fleshly will and desires in life and to turn unto Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw that he looked at the religious Jews and he called them something last week, if you guys remember. He called them brood of vipers. And that means you bunch of snakes. You know, a lot of times people say we need to water down the gospel. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to make it, you know, so, you know, so it fits into people's felt needs. And you know what? Our God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and the message should always be delivered in love, but may we never water down the gospel. And John the Baptist certainly did not. He said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, you guys need to be saved. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't care how long you've been going to temple. I don't care how long your robe is. I don't care how righteous you think you are. You need to be born again. And so we're going to pick up this week and we're going to finish off looking at John the Baptist and then we'll look at the baptism of Jesus Christ. We'll look at the genealogy that connects Jesus to Adam. And then lastly, uh, Lord willing and time willing, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. So let's pick up, uh, backtracking a little bit into last week with verse 15. And this is right after he's given this heavy duty and clear message to the Jews of the day. 
And it says here in verse 15, Now the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he is the Christ or not. And John answered saying, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I've told you guys that one of Pastor Chuck's favorite messages down at the pastor's conference is touch not the wine, touch not the women, touch not the money, and touch not the glory. And you know what? Right here we see that John the Baptist absolutely will not touch the glory. He's being used mightily by God, but to God alone be all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. You know what? Anything that we do that brings glory and honor to God's name, He's the one that gave us the ability to do it. So He alone should be glorified. Amen? You know what, anytime you see somebody at the worldwide ministry, if you ever come in here and see the worldwide ministry of Dave, run out of here. Amen? It's not about me, it's about him. And so clearly, John the Baptist said, look, they said, are you the Christ? Are you the one that's coming? Are you the, are you the hope of our salvation? And he said, look, there's one coming after me who is, I'm not even worthy to, to take the most lowest form of a slave, to undo his sandals, and to wash his feet. That's who Jesus is compared to every single one of us. Amen? He's the, he's the, the one through whom we can be saved. And he, said, he says He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's interesting to note that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for those who accept Christ, but the baptism of fire is for those who reject Him. You know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about hell. But you know what? I love my kids enough to warn them to stay out of the street. Why? Because I love my kids, and I don't want them to get hit by a bus, right? Amen? And you know what? Warning my kids is not a sign of me being a judgmental and a hateful father. It's a sign of a loving dad who cares for his children, who does not want to see them reap the consequences of making a bad choice. And so too with God, He teaches us about heaven, but He also teaches us very clearly about hell. And there is a place called hell, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but it's real. I'd rather have you hear about it than have you experience it. Amen? And you know what? So often we want to say, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's a cruise ship to heaven. Well, all paths lead to God. And, and the reality is all paths do lead to God, but only one path leads to heaven. Amen? And it says here that He'll baptize some with the Holy Spirit and some with fire, because there will be judgment that will come to those who reject Christ. Verse 17, His winnowing fan is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. A winnowing fan was something they used in those days where they would take the harvest, the grain, and they would throw the grain up in the air and the fan would blow and the grain was heavy enough that it would hit the ground but the chaff would blow away. And it says here that the Lord has that winnowing fan in His hand and the true grain will remain but the chaff will be blown away. And He says He will gather up the wheat and He will put it into His barn and that's a picture of heaven. But He will take the chaff and He will set it aside and it will, it will be placed in a place of unquenchable fire. And that's a picture of hell. Verse 18, And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. John exhorted the people. Exhortation means to incite people to an action. It's to share with somebody not just the truth so they can go home and, and have increased their knowledge. You know, hopefully you don't come to church just so you can increase your knowledge. You know, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. But you know what? Just having knowledge doesn't change us. We need to have a, a heart change. Amen? There needs to be something different that happens. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And as the Word of God is planted into our heart, may our faith grow, may our actions change, may our desires change, may we be more conformed to the image of God. And John was a man who exhorted people. I've been accused of that once in a while too. Verse 19. And it says here, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which the Herods had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now what's interesting to me is the Bible says, Of men born among women, there was none greater than John the Baptist. And those words came out of the mouth of Jesus. He said, Out of all the people that have ever been born, apart from Jesus himself, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. But then we see what did John the Baptist say. He said, I must decrease that he might increase. There must be less of me and more of him. Even though Jesus said, of men born among women, there's been none greater. But notice that John was faithful, that John preached the word without compromise, that John did not water down the gospel, and where did it land him? In prison. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, if I'm faithful to God, then he's going to give me the mansion on the hill. And you know what? The reality is that that whole faith and prosperity doctrine is so contrary to the Bible that it's scary. 
You know, the reality is that we are to set our mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Amen? The things here are perishing anyway. Not that God wants you to, you know, live on a rock pile and, and eat, you know, dry bread for the rest of your life to prove that, you, that, you know, you're a Christian. It's not like that at all. The Bible says that you might have life and life more abundant. But may our focus be on the eternal, not the temporal. Amen? And John the Baptist was a man who was faithful to the kingdom of God, but where did it land in? It landed him in prison. And eventually, it would result in his death. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I want to say this, as Christians in America, I don't think we have any idea what persecution is all about. We have no idea. Some of you think you're being persecuted right now because we've got the metal chairs. You know, these aren't as nice as the chairs we have at the other place. We've got the metal chairs, kind of persecuted. Sometimes the heater's not on all the way. It's a little cold in here. We're facing persecution. But you know what? I was just down at the pastor's conference, and I was sitting at a table having um, breakfast with a guy with Gospel for Asia. And I've been invited to go to India, and I'm excited about it because... You know, I have a chance to go, and Gospel for Asia, what they do is they raise up these young guys who give their life to Jesus Christ. And when these guys do, their whole family disowns them. They basically claim for them to be dead. And these guys go and they spend about 18 months to two years studying the Bible, and then they're sent out two by two to go into villages where the name of Jesus Christ has never been named before. You want to talk about dedicated to God, when they take their stuff, they, they carry it in a coffin. They fill up a coffin with their stuff. They bring it into town. The first thing they do is they dig a six-foot hole outside of, outside of the city for themselves to be buried in. And basically what they're letting the whole town know is we're not going anywhere. If you choose to kill us, that's okay. Drop us in the pit. But we're here, and we're going we're gonna to live here. We're going to show the love of God, and we're going to die here. And they, they asked one of the, the heads of the Gospel for Asia, they said, what percentage of your people will be beaten for preaching the Gospel? What percentage? And he looked at him kind of quizzically and he said, what do you mean what percentage? He goes, well, what percentage? He said, well, all of them, of course. In India, if you preach the gospel, you will be beaten. And it's interesting that there was a Calvary Chapel pastor who had this basic circumstance where he's sitting across the table from this young man who had just recently graduated from that, that Bible school. And the man was kind of eyeing this pastor's Bible. He had a nice leather Bible. And he said to him, do you have an extra Bible? And the pastor said he got kind of selfish. You know, he's kind of holding, well, man, this guy's trying to get my Bible, man. You know, he's kind of holding back on his Bible. And he said that they began talking, and as they were talking, he noticed that in the man's shirt there was a big welt across his, across his neck. And he questioned me, he said, what's the welt across your neck? He said, oh, you know, they beat me again. He said, you know what, and, I, you know, and this time they got me on the ground, and when they get you on the ground with those rods, it's the worst because you really can't defend yourself. But you know what, praise the Lord I didn't have my glasses on that day. I'm so thankful because they always break your glasses, and thank you, Jesus, that I didn't have my glasses on that day. And, you know, they shredded my Bible, but, you know, and he, and he looked at the man and he said, well, you know, you're a minister of the gospel. You know what I'm talking about. And the pastor went, oh. Felt so bad. Why? Because this man understood what persecution is. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And, you know, we think we're persecuted if maybe somebody at school or at work won't talk to me anymore because I've been outspoken about my faith. You know what? May we learn from people like the people in India who are sold out for Christ, and people like John the Baptist who ended up in prison. So we move on from, from the story of John the Baptist, and now we're going to see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's going to arrive on the scene, and it's going to begin with his baptism. From the age of his birth until the age 30, as we see him being baptized, all we've seen of Jesus is basically one minor statement talking about him at 12 years old, ministering in the temple. That's it. And I believe that during those 30 years, we see that the Lord had intimate communion with the Father. And that's what it's really all about. And now, after 30 years of preparation, we're going to see three years of ministry. And it's going to begin. Now, I want us to see real clearly this morning, the Holy Spirit's inspiration in the life of Jesus Christ. I know maybe you've never thought about that, but we see the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's one God manifest in three persons. But I want you to see real clearly this morning... The, what the, the active part that the Holy Spirit had in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it should be an example of the active part that the Holy Spirit should have in the ministry of each one of our lives as well. So let's take a look in verse 21. It says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while He prayed, the heavens were opened. Now, in Luke 1.35, it said that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 9.14 and 10.5, it says, Jesus offered Himself 
through the Holy Spirit without spot to God. It says in Hebrews 9, For if blood of of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of unclean blood sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? He tells us very clearly that from the beginning He offered Himself as a sacrifice. So, He was born of the Spirit... From His very birth, He was offered by the Spirit to the Father. And now we're going to see that the Holy Spirit, as He begins His ministry, is going to come upon Him. Now, what is this? This is all an example for each one of us. That as Christians, we must first be born of the Spirit. Jesus Christ was born of the Spirit. And you must be born again of the Spirit. Amen? Each one of you is born in your flesh, dead in your trespasses and sins. Me too. And only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ may we be born again. And once we've been born of the Spirit, we must come to the place where Jesus did and surrender our lives to Him completely. And that's what Jesus did. And now, as He's going to become active in ministry, we're going to see the Holy Spirit comes upon Him. Now look what it says there in that verse. It says that it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. Now you might wonder, why was Jesus baptized? First of all, baptism is not necessary for salvation. But baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. Now, in everybody's case except the case of Jesus Christ, Jesus is identifying Himself with man. And He's pointing to the fact that He is going to fulfill what is needed for us to be saved. Baptism is a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are baptized, we are letting the whole world know that I want to be identified with Him. And here He was giving us that example. It says here that He prayed and heaven was opened. You know, only in Luke does it say that. And it's interesting to me that the Lord prayed and heaven was opened. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil was torn. That that most holy place that that only the high priest could enter in, now we can all enter in. And because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, the mediator between man and God. And so it says that Jesus prayed and the heavens were opened. Verse 22. And the Holy, Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now this marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's a picture of the Trinity. Because right here you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him bodily like a dove. And I want to make it real clear. The Holy Spirit is not an essence. You know, the Holy Spirit is not, you know, some, you know, incense in the sky. That's not the Holy Spirit. Now, in Santa Cruz, a lot of people think that's the Holy Spirit. That ain't the Holy Spirit, okay? It's not burning a candle and woo, and that ain't it, all right? That's not God. The Holy Spirit is a person. And it says the Holy Spirit descended bodily upon Jesus Christ. So here you have the Son coming up out of the water. You have the Spirit descending upon Him. And then you have the Father speaking. And He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now what's interesting to me is that He is pleased with Jesus, and yet Jesus has yet to do anything in His public ministry. At this point, Jesus has not healed one person. He has not preached one message, apart from sharing in the temple when He was 12 years old. He has not done anything, any works that would cause the Father to be pleased. You know what that tells me? Is the Father is pleased with Jesus, not because of what He did, but because of who He is. Amen? And you know what? I want to say that that applies to your life. The Lord is not pleased with you because of what you've done, but because of who you are through the shed blood of His Son. Amen? It's not based upon the works you've done. Oh, you know, if I do this, God will love me even more. You know, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Amen? There's nothing you can do. He loves you more than you can even possibly understand or imagine already. And even before He had done anything, He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased because of who He is. Amen? He's pleased because He truly is the one who would come and die that we might have eternal life. Before He preached the message, before He had done anything, Jesus' future actions, of course, would certainly bless the Father. And they would be things that would glorify and honor the Father, and so should our actions too be. But know that God loves us apart from the works that we do. It's not what we've done that makes us pleasing to Him, but it's who we are. And who are we? Let me make it clear you guys. We are adopted sons and daughters. That's what the Bible says. You know, a lot of people serve a block of wood. They serve a dead God. They got a, you know, a big fat God. They put an apple in His lap, you know, and they, work, you know, and they, you know, they carve it out of a piece of wood, then they bow down and worship it in the afternoon. That's not the God we serve. 
Amen? He's a risen living Savior. He's the creator of the universe, and He has adopted each one of us into His family, that He truly is our Heavenly Father. And one of the names for Him is Abba Father, which means Daddy. He's someone who we can have a close and personal and intimate relationship with. I'm so thankful that that's the God that we serve. Amen? And He is pleased with us, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are. So he begins his public ministry, but notice that he doesn't begin his public ministry until the Holy Spirit has come upon him. That's an example for each one of us. That if we want to have ministry that is fruitful, then we too must walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must be upon us. If we do anything according to our flesh, it will be fruitless. If we do it according to our own wisdom and our own will, it will come to nothing. But if we die to self and we're filled with the Spirit, then God can use us mightily. Now we're going to move on and look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it might seem odd. Here's the baptism, and only Luke does this. You've got the baptism of Jesus Christ, and then he's about to start his public ministry, but right before you see that, he drops in a genealogy. And you might think, what in the world is that doing in there? Why does he put that in there? Let me tell you why. Because Luke's focus is, again, on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Linking Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam. I love the Bible that you, can, that you can look and you can see Adam and you can see Jesus. This is why I believe in a young earth. It's very clear from genealogy and scripture to me that here's Adam and here's Jesus Christ. God created Adam on the sixth day and here's Jesus Christ. Amen? And we can count the generations between the Lord and Adam. But let's take a look. And I want you to see again that Jesus Christ, though He's 100% God, is also 100% man. In Matthew's Gospel where the focus is on Jesus being the Messiah, the King of Kings... His genealogy only goes to Abraham to prove to the Jews that this is the Messiah of the seed of Abraham you've been waiting for. Now he's speaking about the humanity of Jesus Christ and he's going to go all the way back to Adam. You guys are going to have to forgive me if I mess up some of these names, but let's read this. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as he was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now I want to say this. He began his public ministry at the age of 30. It's interesting to me that Joseph began to serve Pharaoh at the age of 30. David began his ruling as a king at the age of 30. That the priests did not become full-fledged priests until the age of 30. And each one of those men, men in a different way was all pointing to Jesus Christ. And he too began his public ministry at the age of 30. His ministry lasted roughly three and a half years. I find that also to be interesting. Because you look at the prophecy of Daniel, and it talks about the tribulation and three and a half years. And all, a lot of other things that point to him truly being the Messiah. It says here, the son of Eli. Now that is the father of Mary. So this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ through Mary. Let me read to you some of these names. It says here, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Malchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semi, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah. And again, he's linking every single one, showing us exactly which line he came from. We're going to come to some significant names here in just a minute. The son of Joannes, the son of Reshai, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Manan, the son of Mattathai, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now, that one is very significant in that the promise is that the Messiah would come of the line of David. We know that David was the, the promised son. And we know what's interesting to me is that David was... What, what is the city of David? Who knows? It's Bethlehem, right? And it says that the Messiah would not only be of the line of David, but he would be born in the city of David. And we know that Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus Christ is the bread of life, who was born in the house of bread, not only of the, the lineage of David, but born in the city of David. Awesome to me to see how God's perfect plan works. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, 
the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night, it says very clearly that the Messiah would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see very clearly here that Jesus did come through the line of Judah just as it had been prophesied several thousand years earlier. You know what? I love the Bible. You know why I love... Man, it's, it is not an old antiquated book written by a bunch of men, but it is the living, breathing Word of God. And every single word that's in the Bible is in there for a reason. And if you go study the Old Testament, it's hard to find a chapter where you don't see Jesus Christ. You see things pointing to Him over and over and over again. And we see it here even in a genealogy with just a bunch of people's names. It says the son of Abraham. We know that the promised seed of Abraham would be the Messiah. That through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed, the Bible says. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that prophecy. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, that's where we get the word for Hebrew, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of, nice name, Arphasad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. Noah is a typology and a picture of Jesus Christ in that he was the one who came and brought deliverance to the people. Those who would receive and accept the word, but most people rejected it. They were too busy going about their own will. Then it's, finally it says, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalal, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I want to make this real clear. There's only been two men that were ever born alive. What do I mean by that? Every person besides Adam and Jesus was born in sin. Adam and Jesus were both born alive. And we're going to see a contrast as we move on and look at the temptation of Jesus Christ at the different response to temptation between Adam and Jesus Christ. As they were both born alive, we're going to see, though, that they respond differently to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Every other person, because Adam did sin, and it through his sin nature, the Bible says we were all born into sin. So you're telling me my new little born baby's born a sinner? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But they're so sweet. Yeah, they are. But you know what? Let them get a little older. They'll learn mine, and they'll be selfish, and just like every other kid that's born. I got four. And you know, I didn't have to teach any of my kids to be selfish. They figured that all out by themselves. And that happens because they're all born of an Adamic nature. They're born sinners in need of a Savior. Only two people were ever born alive. Everybody else was born dead in their trespasses and sins. It also says here, the Son of God, in that He was created. Adam was a created being. No mother or father, created by God from the dust of the ground. And He truly was a Son of God. And it's been said that Jesus Christ is the second or the last Adam. And that through the first Adam came sin and death. And through the second Adam will come salvation and life. The first Adam brought sin to all of mankind, and the second Adam brought salvation to everyone who would trust in Him and believe. Jesus was separated from the Father through the grace and mercy as He took on the, the flesh of mankind. And when He came and was separated from God, He still was born without sin, and He lived a sinless, perfect life. So let's take a look at the beginning of His ministry. So Jesus is born of the Spirit. He's offered and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon Him. And let's take a look and see how His ministry begins. I find this very interesting. At the very beginning of His ministry, it says He will be led out and driven by the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, can you imagine? All right, put this in physical perspectives. You know, I've been studying for 30 years for the ministry. The day has finally come. The Holy Spirit's fallen upon me. This is going to be great. Ministry time. I finally get to do something. For the, you know, and He's God and He knows His perfect plan. But where is He led? It says He was led by the Spirit. And that word led is also driven. So the Lord was driven by the Spirit and He went up on a mountain and preached the Gospel and 50 million people got saved and everybody went to heaven. Is that what happened? That's not what happened. It says here that He was led or driven into the wilderness. This to me is a picture of we're going to see Jesus succeed where Adam failed. We're going to see Jesus triumph where Adam and Eve stumbled and fell into sin. 
He's going to be led out into the wilderness to face temptation of the devil. Temptation of the devil is what caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. And we're going to see the Lord face temptation. And it's also going to be an example to us of how we should face and deal with the temptation of the, of the enemy. So he's going to be led into the wilderness into a place of hunger and temptation, driven by God. So wait a minute, Pastor Dave, you're telling me sometimes if I'm filled with the Spirit of living God, the Holy Spirit's upon my life, I've been called by God, that I may actually be led into the wilderness? The answer is yes. Sometimes you're going to be led into a place where God will prepare you for what's next. Sometimes you're going to be led through a difficulty of life that will cause you to trust even greater in Him. And you know what? What Satan means for evil, God can use for His glory. And that's what's going to happen here. So the Lord is led out into the wilderness... And, and I heard a pastor once say this, led out into the wilderness to rot. And that's seemingly what happens to him. He's led out into the wilderness and he's going to spend 40 days without food. Look at verse 2. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they ended, he was hungry. Now it's a physiological fact that, I don't know how many of you guys have ever fasted, you don't need to raise your hand, but if you've ever fasted, and I have done that, the hardest part is the first day. Because your body, you know, your stomach's pretty stretched out. And, you know, it's, man, it, it's been an hour. You know, when you're a teenager, it's been about 35 minutes. I'm starving, right? I mean, I know my kids. We're driving home from, from McDonald's and they want an ice cream cone because they're starving. You know, what are you talking about? But, you know, that's the way our flesh is. It wants to be fed constantly. And that first day of fasting is the most difficult day. But after two or three days, you stop being hungry. And what happens then is it actually becomes easier. Why? Because your body, your, your stomach shrinks up and you don't need as much food anymore. But there's a point that happens, this is a physiological fact, after about six weeks, or in this case 40 days, where your body gets hungry one last time. And at that moment, your body is saying, if you don't feed me, I'm going to start feeding upon myself and I'm going to die. You've ever seen these native little babies that haven't been fed and their stomachs get all bloated? That's their body feeding upon themselves. And by the time you get to that point, it's too late. Because your internal organs are feeding upon themselves and even if you eat at that point, it's too late, you're going to die. So Jesus is brought to that point. Forty days have passed. And it says, and he was hungry, I guess so. Right? I mean, forty days, no food? Yeah, you're hungry. And it says here, this is the point where you're going to die if you don't have any food. And you know what? It's at that point of weakness that Satan shows up. And you know what? The same thing happens in our life. It's at the time when we're the most vulnerable that it seems like Satan will show up. Oh man, you just lost your job. Where's your God now? Oh yeah, nice God you serve. You lost your job. Oh, you've been diagnosed with cancer. What kind of God do you serve? Oh, something's happening to one of your children. Well, who's this God that you're following after? And he'll wait quite often until you're in this place of, of struggle and difficulty in your life and Satan shows up. And he's going to show up and that's when he's going to tempt the Lord. The Lord is out in the wilderness. He's in a place where he's by himself. He's taken on the flesh of humanity. And there he is and he's hungry. He's hungry. You know, you might ask why was Jesus tempted? We're going to look at the temptation. I believe to prove himself to be God. You know, the Bible says in all ways like us he was tempted and yet without sin but also to expose the tactics of the enemy and reveal to us how to be, how to overcome temptation. You know, it's interesting to me that where was Adam tempted? Where was Adam when he was tempted? He was in the Garden of Eden. Was he hungry? He was full. He had it all, right? You can have anything you want, Adam. Just don't touch that one tree right there. You got it all. He basically had heaven on earth. Do you know that he could communicate with the Father? There was no sin. There was no death. Lions were laying down with lambs. There was no thorns on the, on the rose bushes. Everything was perfect. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. And he was tempted in perfection. And he fell. Jesus is going to be tempted in the wilderness in a time of great despair. And he's going to triumph. Why? Because he's God and Adam certainly was not. Now, what are the resources that Jesus is going to use in this temptation? In Luke 3.22, we saw that he, was, he prayed in preparation. We see that he had the love of the Father. We see that he has the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, as we move through these temptations, we're going to see that he has the Word of God. Let's take a look, beginning in verse 3 at the first temptation. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The word if there is a poor translation, the better word would be since. Hey, since you're the Son of God, why don't you make, you know, you're going to die, you realize that, you're dying, right? You haven't eaten in 40 days, your body's about to give up. And since you're the Son of God, why don't you just reach down and turn those stones into bread? You know, the enemy has to admit and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Amen? The Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here Satan is even saying, since you're the Son of God, why don't you just turn those stones into bread? The temptation that he's making here is, and, the, and you've heard these three things before, you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Here he is tempting him with the lust of the flesh, the desires of our flesh. You know, the Bible says, or it, it teaches us, that the flesh will never be satisfied. How many of you found that out to be true? No matter how much you give yourself, it's never enough. You ever found that out? Oh, if I just get that, then I'll be happy. Oh, I'm not happy. Well, if I just get this, then I'll... Oh, if I get the new car. Oh, if I get the new job. Well, if I get the promotion. You know, if I can just get a couple more trucks on the road. If I can do this, if I can do that. I've met so many people that think, if I just get one more thing, then I'll have peace. And then they get it, and they don't have peace. Because your flesh will never, ever be satisfied. And he's saying to them, I want you... Satan's temptation is, fulfill the lust of your flesh. You know that you're hungry... And even though the Father is the one who brought you out here, led by the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who will tell you when it's time to eat again, forget about the Holy Spirit. Forget about the leading of the Spirit. You do what your flesh wants. Fulfill the lust of your flesh. Fulfill your passions. That's what the lust of the flesh is. It's the passions that you have in life. Fulfill your passions. Just do what you want. Don't worry about what the Holy Spirit's telling you. Go contrary to the will of God. You know what? Satan tells me that every single day. How about you guys? Did he tell you that? Just, oh man, the Lord will forgive you. He's a loving and a gracious God. You ever heard that lie before? He's a loving God. He says he'll forgive you in the Bible, right? Just go do it anyway. It's no big deal. I mean, I hear that, right? Get thee behind me, Satan, right? But that's what the enemy does. He tries to tell you, man. You know, and what happens is you're rendered ineffective for ministry. And he says to the Lord, just turn it into bread. If you're God, prove it. Right? You're God, aren't you? Prove it. Turn it into bread. Forget about what the Holy Spirit says. Don't do the will of the Father. Just turn it into bread. What does the Lord do? How does He respond to Satan? The same way that we should respond. He responds from the Word of God. Look what He says. But Jesus answered to him saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus answers him. Our Savior answer points out that our focus should, not, should be on spiritual food more than on physical food. Amen? You know, as a youth pastor, most of you know for 15 years I worked with high school kids and I did it on purpose. I really, I mean, I like high school kids. I still do. People, that's, you've got to be called to do that, I know. But I love high school kids. And we used to talk about the fleshly tiger and the spiritual tiger. You know, which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most. There's a constant battle in every one of our lives for control. Is it going to be the flesh that's in charge or the spirits that, that is in charge? And the one we feed the most is the one that will win the battle. If we're constantly feeding our flesh with our entertainment and with the things that we do 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and we never spend any time in the Word, and we never spend any time in worship, and we never spend any time with the Lord, then we wonder why we're struggling. You know, with some of us, you know, the, the fleshly tiger is the size of the Grand Canyon. And your spiritual tiger is the size of a gnat, and you wonder why you're losing the battle. The Bible says in the book of Job, we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. And, jo and Jesus is saying here, look, man shall not live by physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A man shall not live by the physical things of the flesh that will not satisfy, but by what the Spirit says, by what the Bible says. That's what feeds us and leads us and guides us and directs us. So the first temptation was the passions of life the lust of the flesh. And the Lord refuted him by saying, no, it's the Word of God. I'm going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, the second temptation. Second temptation is possessions, or the lust of the eye. Look at verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all this will be yours. Now, it's interesting to me that the Bible says that the Father had already promised that all the kingdoms would one day become property of the Son, Jesus Christ. It says in Psalms 2, 7 and 8, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. But the Son would first have to suffer and die before it would become His inheritance. Satan always tempts us to cut short the will of God. You know what? You don't have to suffer and die. I'll just give it to you now. You don't have to walk with God and wait for heaven. You know, I can give you stuff now. You know, I have a uh, tape thing that they gave me at the pastor's conference last year. It says it's called They Sold Their Souls to Rock and Roll. And you know, you, you think that that's a myth and 
And then you watch that video, and they're literally people who have literally... On, these guys are on tape saying, yeah, I went out and I, I traded with the devil and said, you give me the ability to play music and I'll give you my life. And this is exactly what Satan is asking Jesus to do. Now, the reality is that the Lord doesn't argue with Satan here and say, you're not the, you're not the king of this world, because the reality is, until Jesus comes back, he is the king of this world. And all we have to do is look around to see that that's true. Amen? The Bible says he's the prince of the power of the air. And this is his world until the Lord comes back. And we look around and we see what's going on around us, and we certainly see that to be true. But Jesus, he said, just worship me and you can avoid the cross. And it's the same lie that he tells us today. He makes us promises that he can't deliver. Satan was thrown out of heaven for attempting to overthrow God, and what he desires more than anything else is worship. Satan was the most beautiful of all the angels in heaven. He was the angel of worship. And he wants to be worshipped. You know what? It's not by chance that there's so much music that's out there today that worships Satan. Why? Because that's what he loves. And you know, a lot of times we look at him and we think, oh, come on, you know, Pastor Dave, lighten up, you know, the Beatles. Well, the Beatles, if you see that, I sold or sold a rock and roll, you know, the song's like, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Well, that, that sounds like that's from the devil to me. How about you? Amen? I mean, there is a heaven, and, and John Lennon found out the real hard way that there's a heaven, right? The reality is that, that there are those who, who the, the enemy says, you come and worship me, and I'll give you what you want. You know, the Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is the biggest liar ever. And what he wants to do is destroy you and destroy your family, destroy your marriage, and destroy your children. That's what he wants to do. And he'll use any means to do that. And here he comes to the Lord and says, You worship me, and I'll give you everything. He's telling the same lie today. Satan can give you nothing. He hates you, and he wants to destroy you. So how does Jesus respond when Satan says, Come and worship me. I'll give you everything you want. Come and worship me. Verse 8. And Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. That's pretty direct. Amen? Get thee behind me, Satan. He says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. You know, Satan said nothing about serving Him. He just said worshiping Him. But the reality is, that which we worship is that which we serve. Amen? In your own life, you're serving something. You know, Bob Dylan, who since walked away from God, but he, he sang a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. Anybody remember that song? You gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody, right? Maybe rock and roll addict, prancing on the stage, may live in a castle, may live in a cage. You gotta serve somebody. And the reality is, is that there's a real truth to that song that we're all serving someone or something. Some people serve their career. Some people serve their relationships. Some people serve, you know, the, the devil. Everybody's serving something. And now let me tell you something, and this is difficult, but nothing should be more important in the life of a believer than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, more important than your relationship with your spouse is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm loving God with all my heart, then I'm going to love my wife with all my heart too. Amen? When I fall in love with Jesus, I'm going to be serving my wife and ministering to her and loving her and honoring her. But I, don't, I love my wife with my whole heart and I would die for her in two seconds without a thought. But you know what? I love Jesus more. I love my children so much it hurts sometimes. Those of your parents, you know what I'm talking about. I can drive down the road, think about my kids and start crying. I see pictures of my kids on my desk and it tears me up. Why? Because God has given me a supernatural love for them. But as much as I love my children, I love Jesus more. And you know what? May we not fall into the trap of worshiping our spouse or worshiping our children or putting anything else above God. Because why? He is above all. Amen? And He gave me my wife and He gave me my kids and ultimately they belong to Him. And I, you know what? He wants me to have a supernatural love for, him, for them but not, never ever put them above my relationship with Him. We worship only one, God alone. And Him only we serve. Serve God. Love Him above all else. Don't fall into the trap. Lastly, the third temptation, position or pride of life. So He's tempted Him with passions. Then He tempts Him with possessions. I'll give you all the stuff you could ever want. Now he's going to tempt him with position or pride of life. Verse 9. 
Then he brought him to Jerusalem and, uh, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give the angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Here he says, Satan questions the love of the Father and the provision of the Father when he, tempt, when he tells him to turn the stones into bread. He then questions the... the Father's promise of the future when he tells him, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything. And now he's going to question his promise of faithfulness to the Son by saying, what does he say to him? Go up on this high peak, I'll reveal everything to you, throw yourself down. The, the Bible itself says if you throw yourself down that the angels will catch you. Since you're the Son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down and watch how the angels catch you. Well, Satan does something here that he's still doing today. He misquotes Scripture. You think that started with the Mormon church or Jehovah's... No, it started with Satan. Okay? And you know what? And I have no problem naming names. Oh, Pastor David, name name. I'm naming names. The Mormons deny Jesus Christ as God. Amen? They deny it. They say that Joseph Smith, new revelation, you know, you can be God of your own planet one day. Oh, really? I'm going to be God one day? Yeah. And you're going to have a bunch of women and you're just going to populate your planet forever and ever. Really? I get to be my own? Oh, that, I'll, I'll sign up for that. I mean, that's, that's a sign of a cult. A cult deifies man, makes man more than he is, and humanizes God, makes God less than he is. Amen? And here's Satan's coming and saying, you know what? If you're really the Son of God, throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. How does the Lord respond to Satan again? He responds from the Word of God. You know what? The Bible, you can take the Bible and you can make it say just about anything you want, so be careful. You can take two verses out of the Bible and take them both out of context and make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You know, you can preach suicide from the Bible. You know, Judas went out and hung, him, hung himself. The Bible says that, right? It also says somewhere else in the Bible, go therefore and do likewise. Right? So you can take Judas hung himself, go therefore and do likewise, put him together, see, we're all supposed to commit suicide. But that's what people do. They don't teach the whole counsel of God. They take their pet doctrines and their pet verses and they preach wealth and health and prosperity and giving and seed giving and faith giving. And, right? And it's all a man-centered gospel. We need to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen? That's why we teach the whole Bible, verse by verse, all of it. Not just some of it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the key to overcoming temptation is to have an intimate relationship with God and a love for His Word. You know what? You can't respond with the Word if you don't know the Word. Amen? How many of you have done that? You're sharing your faith with somebody and, and sometimes God supernaturally brings stuff to you you read four years ago and that's awesome when that happens. Don't you love that? Amen? But sometimes you're like, man, I know there's a verse somewhere in the Bible that says something about this, but I don't know what it is. You know, last night I was watching, you know, a Brady Bunch marathon. I should have been reading the Bible. You know what I mean? We, we get so focused on worldly things that we don't spend time in the Word. And then when, when people, we have an opportunity to share our faith, we don't know what the Word says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We've got to spend time in the Word. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness victorious. Because look what it says here in verse 12. And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know what? As Christians, God has promised to bless us. God has promised to give us life and life more abundant. But if we step out of God's will and then there are consequences to sin, that's not God's fault. Amen? I have people say, you know, it's just not fair that this is happening to me. You know, I got fired from my job. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, I was being lazy at work, but I got fired. Well, guess what? That's a consequence of sin. Amen? If, if you go out and cheat on your wife and you end up with AIDS, God can forgive you, but you still have AIDS. Amen? You go out and we commit sin, we get outside of God's will, and we say, I'm going to feed my flesh, I'm going to deny the Lord, I'm going to do what I want to do, then there are consequences to sin. Now, God is a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy, and He will forgive us. But we still face the consequences of our actions. And the Lord has, says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And may we not tempt the Lord our God by living a life our own way, according to our own will. One last verse. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You notice that Satan doesn't give up. Satan leaves, but he's not going to quit. He's going to look for another opportunity when he can come right back and bring temptation against the Lord again. He's going to look for yet another moment of weakness when he can attack him. So in summary, 
We saw in the beginning of the text this morning, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. Then lastly, we saw Holy Spirit inspiration in the life of Jesus. He was born of the Spirit. We as Christians must be born again. Amen? Jesus is born of the Spirit. You too need to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, the most religious man of the day, the Pope of the day, came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't say, Go back to church and just be a real religious guy. He said, You must be born again. Well, how can I enter in a second time into my mother's womb? He goes, No, no, no. You've already got a physical body. Now you need to be born spiritually. And as Jesus was born of the Spirit, so must we be born of the Spirit. Amen? Second thing we saw, that Jesus offered and surrendered Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, If any man desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. As Christians, we need to get to the point where we surrender our lives to God. Not giving Christ two hours a week. Not, you know, not, not crisis Christianity where we run to God when things get difficult. Think about this, you guys, if the worship team will come back up. Think about this. How much time do you spend with the Lord? You know what I love? I love to wake up in the morning and my first words are, Yes, Lord. I got that from Samuel. It's not original with me. But the Lord called him and he said, Yes, Lord. And may we begin our day before our feet hit the ground in prayer to God. And then after that, may we just... I love... I, love, I call it putting God on speakerphone. I'm talking with God 24-7. That's the kind of relationship He wants to have with us. Amen? I'm far from a perfect man. I'm in such a desperate need of a Savior. I was telling my dad last night, you know what, God made me a pastor because He knew I needed discipline. You know, because I'm teaching twice, two or three times a week, I'm, I'm in the Word 20 to 30 hours a week. My wife sometimes says to me when I'm leaving at, on Saturday night, most of you know I work a full-time job, so Saturday night I go down to my office at 6 or 7 o'clock, and sometimes she says to me, man, isn't this overwhelming sometimes? Don't you get tired? I mean, you know... You know, my, my kids are sitting around eating pizza with a fire going. You know, and don't, wouldn't you rather just stay home? And, and you know what? Let me just tell you something. I think it's the greatest time of my week when I get to go hang out with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I feel like I'm getting the better portion when I get to go sit in that office and spend six or seven hours with the Lord. And you know what? God wants us to have an intimate, personal relationship with Him. A life surrendered completely to Him. And then lastly, it says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the word for power is dunamos in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And that's where we get the word dynamite. And you know what? Are you, do you have the kind of walk with God that people would say it's dynamite? Is there dynamite power in your walk? Do people at work know that you're saved? Do your neighbors see that there's something different about you? May we pray and ask God that we would not just be born of the Spirit and surrender to the Spirit, but we'd be filled with the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, living dunamis, dynamite, sold out lives for Him. Amen? You know what? God, it's not our works. It's not our faithfulness. It's just us being available, saying, God, will you use me? And then when temptation comes, may we know the Word, that we may be able to go to the Word to refute the temptation of the enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You, Lord, for the example of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that He came and became a man. And Lord, He was always tempted and yet without sin. And He did not use His deity to keep from temptation. But Lord, He was led by the Spirit, the same way that we can be led by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit, the same way we can be filled with the Spirit. He was born of the Spirit as we have been born of the Spirit. And Lord, I pray, Father God, that we would live victorious lives filled with You, glorifying, honoring, worshiping, and magnifying Your name. May we not be ashamed of you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's close the worship song. Stand with us. Thank you. It's good to be.